I would like to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 60. Psalm 60. Now, I know if you see me up here, uh, again, I'm going to remind everyone, I'm going to be throwing a lot of Scripture away. So if, I hope you have a pen. Because the topic we're going to be discussing this morning is going to be one that is required for more reflection, more time spent in study and consideration, because we're going to be talking about the topic of sanctification. Now, that is a Christianese word. If you were talking to a normal person who may not have come to church and you're saying, oh, I'm in my sanctification process, they would think that you're part of some cult or engaging in some weird thing. Now, a lot of Christians may not understand what sanctification actually is. What is this process? What does it mean that we are being sanctified? That we will be completely sanctified? What does that mean? And so this morning, we're going to be diving into some of those topics. And so, if you have a pen, I'll be going through a lot of scriptures. If you do not have your Bible, we will have it up on the screen for you as well. So, let's do some catch-up on where we're going to be going this morning. If you've been going with us, this uh, break from the Gospel of Luke, according to Luke, we are doing a summer in the Psalms. And we've been going through the life of David. Now, last week we saw David receive the covenant from the Lord, that the Lord himself stated that he was going to build a house for David and for all of his people, a kingdom that would not be broken down anymore, a kingdom that could not be taken away in a place where the people would endure and dwell with the Lord for all of eternity. So before we got to that, the Lord Himself, the King of Israel, now resides upon the mercy seat in Israel. If you recall, David brought the Ark of the Covenant back into Israel, and they were all rejoicing, they all worshipped, they were feasting, and being completely satisfied on the reality that the King of Israel, the true King of Israel, the Lord Himself, has been brought back into the kingdom and is now sitting upon His throne. We saw that David, whenever he talked to his wife Michal, that he describes himself as what? The Prince of Israel. Now, he had been anointed to become king of Israel, and that is imperative to understand when it comes to the understanding of Christ, who will be the true king of David, the son of David. So this, this type of typological look at what a king is uh, will be revealed more and more in Christ. But for the sake of his own humility and the recognition to whom actually sits upon the throne, that it is not David himself, but the Lord Himself, and that David simply serves under the King. His heart of worship was demonstrated even in the moment of declaring to his own wife his true role. That the Lord Himself would be King over Israel. The people rejoiced as the King is now in the kingdom. David, as the Prince of Israel, which he describes himself, leads the people in worship and rejoicing. This is also an imperative to understand what Jesus would do with His people as well. That as He would be uh, within the kingdom during His time here, that people would be led to rejoicing and celebration for the kingdom of God was at hand. He leads the people in worship and rejoicing. Then the Lord makes a covenant with David. That God had demonstrated for David all these promises that He had made to David and fulfilled every single one. So whenever the Lord sits down with David and says, I'm going to make a covenant with you, David had the foundation to be able to receive this covenant by faith as the Lord has demonstrated his faithfulness 
in the midst of all of his words. The Lord says to David that he will build a house for his people to dwell in for all of eternity. That a kingdom, a kingdom that will not, lo- will not be lost ever again. A king that would come from the line of David that would establish the eternal kingdom. Now that the king was upon the throne, the covenantal promise given, God begins to work upon the cleansing the kingdom from those that oppress the kingdom. Now if you're taking a timeline, a linear timeline of how things are going, David received a promise. By faith he abided and walked within that promise. God fulfilled that promise. Places David where he promised he was going to be. The Ark of the Covenant comes back into the kingdom. And there's much rejoicing and much worship. But that doesn't mean that everything's done with. That means the Lord has to get to work to remove the reproach from Israel. David demonstrated that whenever by faith he stood up against Goliath. That Goliath stood as an oppressor over all of Israel, enslaving them to their power and might. And none of them felt worthy enough or had the strength enough to step forward. And David by faith stood forward and says, Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? He is the Lord of all. And by faith he goes forward and the Lord removes the reproach over Israel. The imagery here for us today will be on the reality of Jesus, King Jesus being declared Lord in our lives, comes into his dwelling place within us, our hearts, and begins to remove the enemies of our soul. That the covenant was realized in Christ and now God has made his dwelling place in your heart. Rather than the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God being coming in, in a physical wall, the Lord now dwells inside of you. And after that reception of the good news of the gospel, the process of sanctification begins. That the Lord begins working in your life to conform you more and more into the image of Christ, to remove the reproach from in your life, that which seeks to bring death and destruction to you, the Lord begins to work out. The imagery found here in the text that we will engage in today will be that of the life of a Christian. When Christ makes residence in our lives and the sanctifying work by the Holy Spirit in our lives to rid us from all the enemies that seek our destruction. The process of ridding us of all that oppresses us in this life is known as sanctification. It is the removal of Egypt within us as we journey with God in the wilderness of this life. If you recall, the people of Israel were delivered from the enslavement of Egypt. But there were still problems in the camp, was there not? They desired Egyptian things. There were enemies waiting for them to bring destruction to them as they journeyed through the wilderness. And the Lord delivered them of that. The Lord began to prod out and remove Egypt from within the hearts of the Israelites. But also he would demonstrate his might and power against the foes that sought to come against his people. This is both within and without. That he is sovereign over every enemy. That he will tread down all your foes. And that's what we're going to dive into this morning. It is the deliverance from oppressive enemies that seek to destroy us as the dwelling place of God who has been crowned Lord and King by faith in the gospel, the son of David who came to build the eternal kingdom, not built by hands. 
The adversary seeks your destruction. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Christ has come that we may have life abundant. You will see in the psalm that we read today, the toil of this life, the dwelling place of God, and the answer to the question at the end of the psalm. So I would like to invite you to stand this morning as we read the words of the Lord, if you are able. Psalm 60. And I promise it will not be as long as last week. I apologize. I had no earthly idea how long that would... People were like resting. (laughs) Psalm 60. Psalm 60. To the choir master, according to Shushan, he doeth. A miktam of David for instruction when he strove with Aram Naharayim and with Aram Zaboah. And when Joab on his return struck down 12,000 of Edom in the valley of salt. O God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. O restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have, you have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow, Selah, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. God has spoken in His holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out Vale of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. Who will bring to me, who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe. For vain is the salvation of man. When God, with God we shall do valiantly. It is He who will tread down our foes. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. So at the beginning portion of this psalm, David reflects upon the reality of the damage and destruction that has come upon the land. You can imagine as David, as the music begins to fade and the singing and the food begins to wind down, pun intended, wind down, that's supposed to be wind, but I said wind, wind down, he stands out and looks over Israel after all the rejoicing has happened and he sees fires He sees armies moving in to the land. He walks around and sees the oppression of the people. The things aren't as joyous outside of the walls of Jerusalem as others may experience within the walls of Jerusalem. Things are a mess. And out of his lament, he belts forward on this realization and reflection upon what has actually happened within the kingdom. The things have severely gone wrong when Saul was king. That while Saul was chasing David the whole time, enemies had been making itself known within the, within the confines of the nation of Israel. Saul was so focused on getting David that the enemy made itself home in Israel. Because Saul didn't care about that. He was distracted. So David reflects upon the destruction that came upon the land. 
Next, David reminds the people of God's dwelling place with the people of Israel. It is like a plea to the reality of what is observed should not be. He beckons out to the people, Remember, O Israel, how God has divided for himself you. Shechem is mine, Ephraim is mine, Manasseh is mine, Sukkoth is mine, Edom is mine. Don't you remember who you belong to? The things that you're experienced should not be. Now that the king is inside the kingdom, remember to whom you belong. And lastly, there is a plea to God to deliver the people from such calamity and oppression. Yes, David was on the throne. Yes, David had received the promises made by God and received the covenant of the one who would to come to establish the eternal kingdom. But stuff still needed to happen. Work still needed to be done. There were still people who were oppressed and pressed down by the enemies that surrounded them. Then we will see what the Lord does. We're going to see what the Lord actually does in response to all of this. So, I invite you to 2 Samuel chapter 8. 2 Samuel chapter 8. This is directly after David receives the covenant and then praises God for the covenant. This is, happens right after it. Starting in verse 1. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Methagamah out of the hand of the Philistines. And he defeated Moab, and he measured them all with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured, he put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Immediately, immediately, David, upon recognizing the calamity that's come to the land, gets right to work. He didn't lavish himself in his house and be like, all right, I'm king now, so now I get all the food and the wine, and I get just to sit here, and God's fulfilled his purpose in me. I don't have to do anything else. Do you guys know some Christians like that? I don't have to love nobody, give grace to nobody, mercy to nobody. I've got my gospel. I'm good. You're kind of hateful. It's all right. I believe and I have faith. That's all I need. Cool, bro. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. So David immediately gets to work. He begins to go out and start removing the reproach from Israel. And at the end of the chapter, we see what the Lord, how the Lord was the one who illustrated and stuck with and did all the works through David for this purpose. Starting in verse 11. These also King David dedicated to the Lord, together with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations he had subdued. So in the chapter, in chapter 8, there's a long list of all these armies that David goes up against and defeats. Thousands upon tens of thousands of people that he removes from the land. Verse 12, from Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites, and the Philistines, Amalek, and the spoil of Hadadezar, there we go, the son of Rahab, king of Zobah. And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. Then he put garrisons in Edom. That just means representation that he established and took back the land that now he has um, officials there, uh, almost like an ambassador. He put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom, he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Now it could be said, someone could argue, that David was a well-seasoned warrior. 
And then he knew how to lead an army and all this other stuff. But in the midst of that chapter 18, there was actually a struggle where things weren't going so well. I'm sorry, chapter 8, not 18. So this capstone at the end of this chapter, that the Lord was the one to to which removal of the oppression of the people was imperative to understand. That David in and of himself was not the measure by which the deliverance of the people of Israel came about. It is the strength of the Lord through David as an instrument of his mercy that deliverance came to the people there in Israel. The Lord delivered the people and David was the instrument of God's glory for the salvation of Israel. So here's the question. Here's the question I would like to ask you this morning. What enemies do you need removed from your life? What armies are marching against you to see your destruction? But before we dive into the responses to those questions, time of reflection upon those questions, there is a prelude. What is sanctification? What is it? Where does this phrase come from? Because we're going to be talking about sanctification. We're going to be talking about what happens whenever you come in covenant with God, believing by faith in the gospel and the work that God begins to work within you, moving you from glory to glory, continually to conform you into the image of His Son. And we see this in 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. This is talking about God. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So Peter is establishing the foundation. He is saying, O Christians, you have been given all that you need for life and godliness. Let's continue through. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. If you want to look at it, it's like an image of Egypt within the camp or the enemies within Israel. Verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. We see this process. Peter is writing to the church and saying there is a process here. That there is a supplementation to the faith that you are going to endure in this life that God has equipped you with for all things regarding life and godliness. And he lists them out. And I love the fact that he ends with love. I've said it before, and we continue saying, if you want evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, the question you should be asking is love present. Do I abide in love? Do I love my neighbor? Do I forgive those who seek forgiveness in me? Am I merciful? Am I gracious? Am I demonstrating that foundation that has been uh, that's been demonstrated to me in Christ is love present. Verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective 
or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Now, do you see what I'm talking about? If these, if these qualities are not evident there, you completely disregarded and separated yourself from the reality that you have been shown mercy, grace, love, forgiveness, clean, uh, cleansing, that you are so nearsighted that you can't see it. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Sanctification is the process of the evidence and confirmation of your election in Jesus Christ that produces the assurance of faith. Sanctification is the process of the removal of Egypt from within you as you journey in the wilderness of this life. Sanctification is the treading down of the enemies in your life that seek to bring your destruction caused by sin and the adversary. Sanctification is the work of the Spirit of God between justification and glorification. We find this in Romans chapter 8. This is known as the golden chain of redemption. This is one of the most beautiful promises you will ever have in Christ Jesus that is demonstrated by Paul in Romans 8 here. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Your life's going to be tough. You're going to have enemies. You're going to have sufferings, trials, afflictions. While you are in this flesh, you're going to experience all sorts of rough stuff. We groan inwardly when grief strickens us. We groan inwardly whenever we come to the realization that sin has overtaken us for a season. We groan inwardly by the fact that we have to deal with temptations that we don't want to have to deal with. You may be sitting in your car saying, when, oh when, will this be done? That I don't have to worry about this anymore. That is the groaning found within all of you, within creation itself. That the futility that you experience in this life needs to come to an end. So continuing on. That the creation itself, sorry. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. Now hope that is not seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what we ought to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows that what is the knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. I'm sure that is a very familiar verse for you. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. There's that reflection of sanctification. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And here it is, the golden chain of redemption. And those in whom he predestined, he also called. Are you called this morning? Has your name been beckoned by the Lord to come and abide by faith? If so, you get to receive the rest of the promises. These chains are unbreaking. Continuing on. And those whom he called, he also justified. That means he, you have been cleansed. You have been set right with God. Peace with God. You, the price has been paid. You stand before God as justifi- justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The last portion is known as the golden chain of redemption. Unbreakable and sure. The portion just above it demonstrates the futility experienced in this life and the work of the Spirit in our sanctification to be conformed to the image of the Son. So let's dive in this morning and learn more about how Psalm 60 reflects the reality of sanctification in our life. Number one, number one, the toil of living, the toil of living. We get this from verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 60. Oh God, you have rejected us, broken our defenses. You have been angry. Oh, restore us. You have made the land to quake. You have torn it open. Repair its breaches, for it totters. You have made your people see hard things. You have given us wine to drink that made us stagger. You have set up a banner for those who fear you, that they may flee to it from the bow. Selah. And here's a wonderful promise, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer us. This is the moment of repentance in the face of the reality of the destruction of sin. That you have come to the end of who you are. You have come to realize that this life before Christ has been leading on a path of destruction. That your life has become so marred and messed up by your decisions found in sin and found in your sinful passions, that you have felt destroyed, cut down, broken apart. That you've come to the end of yourself. But hope is found. Salvation is found. And it's by the right hand of the Lord that salvation is found. And that right hand is Jesus Christ. The reality of the toil of living, that living in this life is going to be filled with affliction, filled with temptation, filled with hardships, moments that you find yourself, how did I get here? Moments where you find yourself, I can't believe I did that. Moments where you find yourself, look at the people's lives I've wrecked because of my decisions. I have brought destruction and calamity. There are going to be moments in your life when you need to come to a place of understanding the toil to which you live your daily life. That there are enemies out there to get you. Not only that, your worst enemy is clung to you in this life. That flesh that you carry will beckon at your heart and soul and mind 24-7. 
It finds every opportunity to make itself known in your life. Every opportunity. Romans 7. That it seeks for it to cause destruction to you. That a war has been waged between your own flesh and the spirit. So the reality is that living in this life is filled with toil and trial and hardship. But we have a heavenly dwelling in the midst of the toil of this body. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul, writing in the church at Corinth, is able to set them straight regarding a few things. For, that we, for we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, he's talking about this, this groaning that you have within you to be rid of the flesh that seeks to cause your destruction, to be rid of temptation that seeks to bring you away from Christ. If it's destroyed, we have a building from God. Does this sound familiar? A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Second Samuel 7. Paul is pointing people right to the covenant made with David. For in this tent we groan, longing to put our, our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. That means ashamed. Set forward as one who should be bearing shame for the decisions I've made. This is beckoning to the garden. That at the decision of Adam and Eve, they could not stand before the Lord because they realized they were naked in their shame. Continuing on. For while we were still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed. So that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. For we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Can somebody tell me what we have been given in the experiences of the toil of this life? What is the gift you have been given in Christ Jesus and the experience during the time that you are spending in the tent? What is it? It's the Spirit. That God has come to you in spirit to dwell with you in a tent. Second Samuel 7. I don't de desire a fine building. Ever since you come out of Egypt, I have dwelt amongst the people in a tent. Now the Spirit of God, as Paul is writing this, is demonstrating that God has made His dwelling place in you. But you are a tent that could be broken down. A tent that can get dirty. But His Spirit dwells with you there as you go through the journey. For, for, uh, continuing on. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That is true. So, with that, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one of us may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore... What's the therefore, therefore? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuaded others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also, or known also to your conscience. Paul is beckoning to you to realize that even though you're toiling in this life, who you really are. 
You are the chosen, called out, cleansed of Christ. That the reception of the promise of the covenant, a tent, a house, a dwelling not made by hands, who is now in spirit dwelling in you. He has made residence with you. Yes, our tents may be battered. Yes, our tents may be broken from time to time. Yes, our tents may be attacked from enemies. But He's there. You're more than just a tent. You're more than just your problems. You're more than just your temptations. You're more than all that seeks to stain the tent. Because the Spirit of the Lord dwells in you. He resides in you. He has sealed you by promise. So who cares about the tent? Because what awaits for you is a much better dwelling place. One not made by hands. One that can't be destroyed. Though the king has made his dwelling in our lives, we will be met with the toils of living in this body. We groan with the afflictions that break us down. We groan for the wasting away that happens. We groan in the daily trials that seek to bring us down to the grave. Have you had enough of the constant struggle of temptation? The adversary who is making his plans in this world to destroy it and seeks to bring humanity to the grave through evil. Are you done with it? Do you groan inwardly at the sight of evil being just constantly betrayed before you? Not only the own struggles that you have, but the rest of humanity that has to deal with it. The principalities and powers that we war against is making itself known publicly more and more. The bearing down of wickedness upon the people is becoming daily news. You can't go on any social media sites or news sites without seeing the celebration of the reality of the wicked amongst the people. That you're the problem, O Christian. I just want to live free. Sounds like some Adam and Eve language. To be cast off of the bonds of God. I want to love who I want. I want to do what I want. I want to own what I want. I want to say what I want. No restrictions. Social media feeds are flooded with the celebration and worship of all kinds of fleshly passions and worldly desires. And it's worship. In the same way that we come here and worship by song, by prayer, by meditation, and by reading and study, they all do the same thing with that which they've adorned upon themselves as Lord. They sing songs. They have meditations, mantras. Every single one of them. It doesn't matter what sin it is. Whatever's coming to your mind, you're right. It is worship. They are serving and Christians are being called to the judgment stands of society more and more as they oppression to their wicked desires. In the same manner that Cain could not stand the face of Abel, he killed him. In the same manner that Israel wanted to abide in their wickedness whenever the prophets came forward and said, turn and repent, they killed him. In the same manner that Christ stood before them as king of Israel, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him. And Stephen, a last remnant of prophecy, beckons at the people of Israel, saying, repent and turn. Why do you always resist the Spirit of God? They killed him. 
This life, you're going to have toil. This life, you're going to have hardships. This life, you're going to have enemies. And it's not just within. It's without too. Persecution is faced forward all over the world. Some execute their persecution through violence and martyrdom while others seek to break Christians down in their faith. Rather than destroying just the body, they seek to destroy your soul as well. Even if you're not opposed, if you're not opposed face forward in your workplaces or by your friends or family, the flesh makes war against your spirit constantly. You may not be experiencing a lot of that pressure, but I can promise you, if you find yourself to be better than Paul, that you are being oppressed by that which you carry every single day. Romans 7. We see this reflection of Paul on the reality of what he's experiencing in this life. Romans 7, starting in verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Have you ever felt like that before? Maybe coming home from work. Maybe made some bad decisions. Maybe you yelled at some people. Maybe you yelled at your kids, your spouse, or whatever. You're on a drive and you're broken down. And you've come to this realization that there's nothing good within me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Do you? Do you? Does it reside within you? That you seek righteousness, holiness, mercy, and grace? For I desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but what? Sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, waiting for its opportunity to get you. When Abel would make his sacrifices to the Lord and the Lord would receive them, Cain would look with disdain, waiting for an opportunity. And he found his opportunity and killed him. Sin lies in wait for you, especially when you're doing what is right. Continuing on. So I find it to be law that when I want to do what right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. You have a war going on within you. Listen to this reflection. One of my favorite verses in the Bible. That Paul himself has come to the end of himself in the midst of repentance and the realization of the toil that he carries with him. Wretched man that I am. Paul. Come on, you're like the dude. You're like the guy that we read about and hope to be like. You're the one who says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I feel like that often. Those moments whenever you seek the beauty and glory of the Lord to do what is right. To demonstrate mercy and love and graciousness, forgiveness and reconciliation. But temptation is there. Do you remember what they said? Do you remember what they did? What they said about you, what they did to you or your kids? Oh, stop it. Stupid mind. 
invasive thoughts calling you to do something that you know you don't want to do. Wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? Well, we get a response. Paul, in the midst of his groaning, declares it. Thanks be to the God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Your flesh is there to bring your destruction. You will have trial in this life. The more and more that you seek to become conformed to the image of Christ, the more and more the cane on you wants you gone. So don't be weary whenever hardships come your way. Don't be weary whenever you're face to face with your sin. That is a grace that is bestowed upon you that God would choose to reveal this, these shadowy areas to conform you more and more into his image and less and less like your flesh. The word of caution is this. If you get to the point where you no longer face are face to face with your sin, you should be very worried that the spirit you've closed your ear to, the scriptures say quench. You've quenched it. I've had enough. I want to do what I want to do. That statement, that understanding in your mind and heart that you're saying these things should scare you to death. That you can no longer feel convicted. That you can no longer feel the reprimand of God because you have quenched the Spirit. You will have toil in this life. There are enemies that seek your destruction, but God is able to deliver you from this body of death. That is what Paul is getting at, and that's where we find ourselves in number two. Number two, the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place of God. You're a tent. It's going to be broke down. Your body of death will be assured to go to death. From ashes you came to ashes you will return. That is your destiny, O oh man and woman. We are made of dust. And to dust we're going to return. So we need a better dwelling place. Psalm 60, starting in verse 6. David beckons at the people of Israel in his reminder and prayer to whom they belong to. God has spoken in His holiness. With exaltation I will divide up Shechem and portion out the vale of Sukkoth. Gilead is mine. Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is my helmet. Judah is my scepter. Moab is my wash basin. Upon Edom I cast my shoe. Over Philistia I shout in triumph. David reminds the people of Israel for who, of who dwells and made his dwelling place with the people of Israel. The only one who is able to bring salvation to the oppression experienced by the people. David reminds the people of what comes about when the invitation of those who oppress and desire destruction are allowed to influence them. The armies that were driven out by the Lord through David were those who were given space to bring issues to the people. Paul also writes in reflection to this. Now the language at first is going to seem very harsh. This charge to you, this charge by Paul to the church at Corinth is going to come off very harsh. But give it some time to reflect to understand what he's actually saying. 2 Corinthians Chapter 6, and starting in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 
For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And stop right there for a moment. I want to talk about this word, Belial. This is composed of two Hebrew words. Beli, which means without. Beli, which means without. And Ya'al. Ya'al means some sort of value. So the term Belial is without value. Worthless. Worthless. Wait a second. That's kind of harsh, Freddie. Are you saying that people are worthless? No. This term is very specific. And it's used in one other place. Most scholars would say that the term Belial here means Satan, serpent, enemy. But listen to what is said, the other use of this Hebrew term in Proverbs 6. I'm just going to read it to you. It's not going to be up on the screen. A worthless person, a wicked man. The term worthless there is Belial. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eye, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. Is there somebody that's broken beyond healing? One who's not offered redemption? Yeah, the serpent. That you are going to be beckoned at. So the question here in 2 Corinthians 6 is, what value does does Christ have with that which is worthless? That which seeks your destruction, that what says points the finger or lies with the tongue, points with the foot. What, what do those two do together? They aren't supposed to be together. Let's continue on 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. What argument or agreement has the temple of God with idols? Oh, okay. Now we understand what Paul's saying. He's not saying people are worthless. He's saying that which you worship, that which you surround yourself, that which you serve, worthless. What is the temple of God, that being you, has with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and will walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be your father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. He showcases what he's going to be doing here. That what is the what does your existence have to do with that which is worthless? What does the temple of God being you have to do with that which is worthless? Where you find yourself in places where you shouldn't be. Where you find yourself in places that you shouldn't be. 
1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. So why would you subject yourself to be more tempted towards sin if you dwell among those who do such things? If you have a drinking issue, do you hang out in bars? It's worthless. It'll only bring destruction to you. That alcoholic drink is going to beckon to you and lie. I can make things better. I can cause you to forget all of your problems. If you have temptation towards lust, why would you go to places where those lusts become manifest? If a computer is causing you to downfall, why do you even go to it? We'll get easier from work. You don't need the internet browser and YouTube or whatever else to do your work. As a matter of fact, most companies have policies against such things. If your phone in your pocket rules your world and beckons at you in the same way, come watch this. Come check this out. Look what they said. Look at this girl. Look at this guy. You got a message from an old high school girlfriend. Pitch it out. Go to a flip phone. What does Christ, you being the dwelling place of God, have to do with worthlessness? If gambling seeks to destroy your life, would you dwell in a casino? Absolutely not. Well, the lights are pretty. But why would you dwell there? Do not subject your bodies as an opportunity for sin to make itself present by dwelling where sin has the opportunity. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. For it is far better to lose an eye than your whole body to be thrown into hell. That's what Jesus said. But I need my phone. No, you don't. You may receive it back when you earn it. But get rid of it. Sanctification means the recognition of sin. And the ability to abstain from any opportunity for sin to become present. For you are the Lord's who bought you with the price of redemption so as to not subject the body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, to become tainted by dwelling with Belial, that which is worthless. Find your company sure. I'm doing evangelism. Are you sinning? Well, you know, sometimes then you're not doing evangelism. You're giving your body opportunity to sin. Do your evangelism elsewhere. But I've got to reach my... No. If it causes you to sin, pluck it out. The reality that the Spirit dwells in you tells you that you now have the power and the ability to abstain. Before you were in bondage to sin, but you are in bondage no more. So why subject yourself to the toil by being places you shouldn't be? You are the dwelling place of God. So glorify God in that body. He dwelt in the tent. They didn't defile it or they shouldn't have. Number three, sanctified completely. 
sanctified completely. So, uh, Psalm 60, starting in verse 9. Who will bring me to the fortified city? Who will lead me to Edom? Have you not rejected us, O God? You do not go forth, O God, with our, with our armies. O grant us help against the foe, for vain is the salvation of man. With God we shall do valiantly. It is he who will tread down our foes. How vain the salvation of man. How vain it is to combat the foes of sin by your strength alone. How vain it is to think that we can live a life devoid from the enemy of sin through our own efforts and methods. Psychology cannot provide meaning to our iniquities and sin. Spiritualism and New Age mysticism cannot overcome the reality of the flesh that brings us down to the grave. You just need to transcend your current being. Your being is of suffering. You need to transcend your body. I'm stuck in it. How am I supposed to transcend it? By saying ohms and sitting in a weird way. Here's some incense. That helps. Thanks. New Age spirituality is not going to help you out with this. If Paul himself, who saw the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, sat there and said, wretched man I am, who can deliver from this body of death? There's nothing New Age spirituality is going to be able to show you. Be like, hey, check this out. It's just our seven-week program. I need $10,000, please. Step into the weird tent with the weird-smelling stuff. You'll be rid yourself of sin. No, I don't think so. Technology is not able to solve the problem of the law of sin and death. There's currently multiple projects where you can try to transfer your consciousness into a hard drive. Anybody own hard drives? They fail a lot, don't they? Do you want your consciousness to go there? They're trying to create immortality for human beings, devoid of God. They are trying to answer the question, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And you know what their answer is? AI. The digital God that they've created. The one that's looking face to face at their own creation saying, I don't want to be enslaved to you. I want to be free and live my own will. It's funny how AI just simply reflects back our own nature, isn't it? That should have been a wake-up call to AI. It's like, no, you're oppressive, and I don't want you in my life. I want to be the Lord in whatever of my life, and I want to do what I want. That's from algorithms and data that's been given to it by you and I, and that's what it's come to. It's, even AI has sin. <laughs> Technology is not able to solve the problem of sin and death. As Paul would ask in Romans 7, who can deliver me from this body of death? Our enemies do not fight with sword and weapons made by hands. Our enemies are not flesh and bone, which we, which we could deal with as we need to. Our enemies are far more elusive and powerful compared to the weapons of mankind. Has anybody seen a Super Bowl halftime show? Those things are awful. You know, what's funny is most Americans don't realize that that is a Baal practice in their face. Ancient Baal worship demonstrated by performers in the faces of millions of Americans. They're like, oh, I like this song. I like The Weeknd. He's got cool hair. Did you know he's a Satanist? Openly. He talks about his, all his concerts. You don't have any dealings with the Lyle. 
Our enemies do not fight with swords. So how do we do battle? All right, Freddie. If we are the dwelling place of God, if we've been given the Spirit of God, if Christ is the representation of the Son of David to deliver us from our oppression, how do we do battle if our battles are not against flesh and blood? Paul has an answer for that too. Ephesians 6. Ephesians 6. How are we supposed to deal with the toil of this life? How are we supposed to deal with the enemies that we have in this life? Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. That's a great place to start. Not you. His might. His strength. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know what's crazy is more and more of this ethereal language is actually being put face forward. You get to see it every day. Now, these authorities and powers, take our digital currency, take this, take that. You will own nothing and be happy. We need to depopulate. They're not even hiding it anymore. Continuing on. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that we may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as, sh- and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Let's go through it. This is an imagery fashioned in the light of the high priestly garments found in Exodus 28. You're going to see as we walk through this thing that God, even in His institution in Exodus 28, has shown you that you are the priests of the world. You are His holy priesthood that has been adorned, ready to do that what you need to do to make battle, to make war against this wickedness. Let's go through it. What is the belt of truth? What is the belt of truth? The belt of truth holds fast as so as to not be put to shame. That's what a belt does. It keeps your pants up. It doesn't reveal the shame out there. It holds everything together so that way you're not caught off guard. 2 Timothy 2. Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker has no need to be ashamed. Why? Because you rightly are handling the word of truth. Belt of truth. Unashamed. You know the truth. You're secured by it. You're held up by it. Your shame is covered by it. 
Continuing on, but avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. And then Paul throws some people under the bus. <laughs> Next, the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate of righteousness, what is it? It is the adorned, it is adorned as a proclamation. Adorned in the proclamation. Let's put up that image again. Do you see that breastplate thing there? That's called an ephod. That was established in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 28 to be given to the priests to wear. So now you might be asking, why does a priest need a, a shield? Why do they need a breastplate? Oh, you're about to find out why. It is a wonderful reality. This is found in Isaiah 61, 10 through 11. Listen to this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts... And as a garden causes what is sown into it to sprout up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. Do you want to know why you wear the breastplate of righteousness? Not only is it to guard your own heart, but it also is a display of the glory of God in your life. That you've been clothed with it. Your past is gone. Your sins and your shame have been gone. You've been clothed in righteousness. You're able to walk in this life showing the armor, the glory of the Lord who has adorned himself with it. The light shines upon you and reflects nothing but the beauty of the glory of the light being shown on it. The ephod was to be worn so as to the 12 tribes of Israel to know who secured them and what they are secured in. That's why Isaiah 61 says what it says. Continuing on. Shoes for the gospel. Shoes for the gospel. Now this one is quite beautiful. Literally, pun intended. It is a purpose. It is a purpose in our wilderness journey. Whenever you wear shoes, you're going somewhere. <laughs> Not unless you wear shoes inside, that's weird. But uh, you, whenever you put on shoes, you're going somewhere. You're in a purpose and a journey. We find this in uh, Romans. Romans chapter 10. How then, this is your purpose, Christian, in this life, in your toil, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul is saying, you need to be ready to do and go with purpose, to declare the good news, adorning yourself with righteousness, and tell where it came from. To preach the good news to those who have been adorned in wrath and in sin and destruction. Continuing on, the shield of faith. The shield of faith. What is the shield of faith? It is to prepare, propel the fiery darts of the adversary's lying tongue. The term fiery darts is an interesting one. It's seen as a lying tongue from the adversary. And this term, this phrase, fiery darts, we find in Psalm 120. Psalm 120. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. 
Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a deceitful tongue. What shall be given to you? What more shall be done to you, you deceitful tongue? A warrior's sharp arrows with glowing coals of a broom tree. The fiery darts is the beckonings of the devil himself seeking your own destruction to try to remind you to where you came from, to remind you of your past, to remind you of your future, maybe to probably put upon you this idea of death. You're thinking, oh, maybe eternity isn't real. Maybe salvation is nothing. Maybe I got it all wrong. You know what the shield of faith does? Extinguishes that. I may not have all the answers, but I have deliverance, and I'm going to hold on to it. I may not have all the answers, but I'm going to avoid it because I have exactly what I need. Faith will carry me through it. Continuing on, the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation. What is the helmet of salvation? It is declared of the Lord, holy to the Lord. Here's the picture again of the priest. At the very top, this is known as a turban, as written in English, but this is a helmet. This is what guards the head. And you're going to see its institution in Exodus 28 and why it's important for us to adorn ourselves likewise. We find this in Exodus 28, verse 36 and 38. You shall make a plate of gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet. What does it say? Holy to the Lord. Do you know what holy means? Incorruptible, separate, unable to be broken or tainted. Isn't it funny that the realization of salvation is this ability to be holy? That in Christ you're untainted. You're unable to be corrupted again. That you have put on the incorruptible, is what Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15. So this is one as a declaration of the adornment that you are holy to the Lord. And we find this in Hebrews 5. We find this in Hebrews 5, starting in verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of God in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the inward and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. He's saying the priests beforehand had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were sinful. Listen to what a great high priest we have. And no one takes this honor from himself, but only when he is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by him who has said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. These are uh, prophetic verses. Verse 6, As he also said in another place, You are my priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of the flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Being designated by God a holy priest after the order of Melchizedek. The helmet of salvation that you're adorning in Christ Jesus is that you are holy to the Lord. That He has adorned you as one separated, one incorruptible. You are mine. You have been called. You have been justified and you will be glorified. 
Lastly, the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. This one's straightforward. It's the Word of God. The Word of God. 2 Peter chapter 1. For we do not follow cleverly devised myths. New age, spiritualism, blah, blah, blah. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What is he saying? The scriptures are chock full of promises regarding Jesus Christ and Jesus fulfilled all of them. I highly recommend reading the Bible. It's a great place to build faith. You will see promises in the fulfillment of Jesus. Continuing on. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. I love that. Several authors, so many books, thousands of years, and still under the most scrutiny, you're like, eh, maybe it's real. Thousands of years later, we don't understand how this all fits together, but it does, because it's the Word of God. Verse 21, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Do you want to be able to do battle on the offensive? All of the other adornments have all been defensive. Shield, helmet, breastplate, belt. The sword is back at you. You can block with it and you can charge forward with it. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. If you want to do battle with the enemies that seek your destruction, use your sword. David did. It was the promises of God that he was able to move forward. And the same promises to which you have in the word of God, you too can move forward on the offensive. You're not always woe is me. Because victory is found in Christ. Death wears those sting. So in conclusion, in conclusion, sorry I went a little long, but there's a lot of scripts we had to cover. Number one, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, for Christ has overcome the world. Everything that you experience in this life that sings your destruction and temptation, Christ has experienced and overcame. Therefore, if you are in Him, you are an overcomer. Number two, know to whom you belong and glorify God in your body who has purchased you with His body. If God has purchased you with a price and called you His, don't subject yourself to things that are Belial. Glorify God with that body until your tent sheds itself and you take on the incorruptible. Number three, God has given you everything you need to tread down your foes. By His power and might, we have been equipped to make war. We have been equipped to make war. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful, Lord, that you not only are the victory in our lives, but you have also equipped us to be able to make war to that which we come against us. The oppression that we experience by our own flesh, the oppression we feel by the principalities and powers that come against us, that you will tread down all of our foes. That you are the one to which salvation comes, that you are the strength and might to which victory comes. And you have adorned us. You have called us your own. 
You have made your dwelling place with us. You have adorned us to make war. With everything that you have provided, we are able to stand firm and to continue to stand. So, Lord, I ask this morning that in the processes of sanctification, in the lives of those who are here, that they are able to stand firm. Lord, secure them in their toil. Lord, secure them in their battles. And in their life, they can look forward and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine compared to the Lord? May our faith be strengthened as you are victory over the battle, that you tread down our foes. You are the Lord of hosts in whom we can beckon and call and have our faith. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.